Coming up, we explore the complex role that religion and morality played in one of the most fraught conflicts in all of human history. That's World War II, and particularly on the Eastern Front. After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dan Hummel, your host, and actually your host for the whole episode this time. It was my pleasure to conduct the conversation or the interview that you're about to hear. So I want to set up today's episode by mentioning something that many of us have probably heard in pop culture, maybe on the news, um, and that is something called the Hitler card or the uh, sort of sarcastic or wry observation that in many conversations, particularly heated conversations in American culture, someone at some point is probably going to invoke Hitler to try to win the argument. That's all to say that often when our culture talks about the Nazis or Hitler, it is extremely heightened for understandable reasons and also very hard to see nuance or even understand the the reality of um, what it was like to live in Nazi Germany or participate in the, that culture or World War II uh, from the German perspective. Or uh, to get to the point of our conversation today, how Germans during the 1930s and 1940s could see themselves as the good guys or could hold their Christian faith alongside their commitments to the Third Reich. And that's where our guest today, historian David Harrisville, has spent years trying to actually understand the moral world of German soldiers during World War II and how they committed devastating acts of atrocities, yet understood themselves as uh, acting in a positive way, or they were on the morally good side. David has spent years studying particularly the Eastern Front of World War II, the lands between Germany and the Soviet Union, and the actions and thoughts and reflections of soldiers in the Wehrmacht, the German army. So this extreme situation is admittedly uh, not a typical one and not one that uh, most of us will ever find ourselves in. But it is also a situation that brings up and maybe boldly outlines some very universal tensions, tensions between the universal and the particular, between nationalism and religion, between individual responsibility and collective responsibility, and between what we might call and what David calls traditional morality and new uh, arguments about morality or new ideologies, in this case, Nazi racial ideology. So while the example of the Wehrmacht is not something many of us are familiar with, by exploring it with David, it opens up a window and in some ways clarifies many of these tension points that we feel in different ways. So I'm delighted to speak to David today. He's a longtime friend and a fellow graduate of UW's PhD program in history. David's also a graduate of Carleton College, where he got his undergraduate degree, and he earned an MA and PhD in modern European history from UW. And David's been a postdoctoral fellow at UW and a visiting assistant professor at Furman University. And he 
currently works for Legal Services Corporation in Washington, D.C., and he talks a little about that in the interview. His new book and the topic of our conversation is titled The Virtuous Wehrmacht, Crafting the Myth of the German Soldier on the Eastern Front, 1941 to 1944, by Cornell Press. And it just came out a couple of months ago. So there's links to the book and to actually some of the books that David recommended in the show notes. And also to some maps that David created using some digital software of the Eastern Front that didn't make it into the book, but they're on his own website. And so please check those out if you're interested. And of course, check out the book uh, for the best uh, for the best information uh, on what David's doing. So I'm excited to jump into this pretty heavy, uh, but also important conversation about humans in extreme circumstances and the moral and the ways they process uh, actions that have great moral value attached to them. So here's an upwards conversation with David Harrisville. David, thanks so much for joining us uh, today on the podcast. Uh, we know each other uh, for a while now. We both uh, went to school at UW uh, in, the, in the history program uh, many, many years together. Actually, what year did you start uh, in the program? I started in 2009. Okay, so I was 2010. So uh, we were there at least half a decade together. We were in Israel together uh, as well uh, for a year uh, studying in in Jerusalem uh, as well. But I wanted to start our conversation before jumping into your uh, book about just who you are and and what brought you to the study of history. So if you could just tell us, when did you um, start becoming interested in history and actually decide to take a long a detour in your life studying it in grad school. Yeah, well, thanks very much for having me. Um, so my interest in history um, started pretty early on. Um, I remember I was maybe like three or four years old, and my dad, who was a history major himself and was always interested in history, uh, he had this bookcase with a bunch of history books, uh, mostly ancient history. And before I could even read, I would pull out these books and look at the pictures. Um, and that, that was kind of my first interaction with history in any sense. Um, and I just thought it was fascinating that there are these like ancient cities and civilizations that existed, you know, long before um, you and me. And uh, that was probably, you know, my first, um, first experience with history. Um, I also remember uh, really uh, when I was like maybe five years old again, playing army with my dad with these tiny little plastic soldiers um, that actually happened to be the German army in World War II, which I think is not a coincidence. <laughs> um, so I kind of I got fascinated by uh, military history, especially um, started watching a bunch of Civil War documentaries on repeat when I was a kid. Um, but for me, you know, a lot of people, I think, kind of grow out of this and, and go and do something else. I just kept um, kept reading books and kind of moved on to World War II. Uh, Stephen Ambrose was one of my favorite authors, um, like in junior high. And uh, then in high school, uh, history classes were some of my favorites. Uh, we had this class, AP European History, that... Um, was my favorite class. Um, I remember getting the highest grade in that class and being very proud of myself <laughs> and, you know, reading this gigantic 500 page history book, um, uh, and learning all these things that I had no idea about before. 
Um, so that's kind of how it got started early on. Um, then I guess moving into college, I um, I knew I liked history because I always had, um, but I, I took a while to figure out what to major in. I kind of like everything. I thought about biology for a while or maybe something else, but history I knew you know, it was one of my favorite things. Uh, and so if I, if I majored in it, I wouldn't be disappointed. Um, and I ended up as like a kind of student worker in the history department, like doing photocopying for the professors and, and kind of, uh, that became sort of my home, uh, in, in college. And so I ended up majoring in history. Uh, but I, I took, Ancient history first, I kind of crawled my way through it chronologically. I started with ancient history, thought about really focusing on Roman history for a while. So I took Latin lessons and then I, I kind of hated Latin. So I stopped doing that and moved on to modern history and uh, German history and European history. Um, and then eventually I decided uh, by senior year that I wanted to go to grad school. And I remember meeting with my undergrad advisor and asking you know, kind of what should I do? How does it work? I didn't really know much about grad school. And he said, well, if you want to study Europe and Germany, you should probably learn German, um, which I hadn't really thought of uh, to that time. So I spent senior year of college doing like a crash course in German and, um, you know, eventually uh, getting into uh, UW-Madison for the graduate program. Um, so that's that's uh, kind of my historical story there. So you came into the program at UW. Were you pretty sure you wanted to study World War II uh, from a sort of German perspective? Yeah, that, that was always my favorite thing. Uh, I had been interested in World War II kind of as long as I could remember. You know, most people know about the American side and Saving Private Ryan, D-Day, uh, Battle of the Bulge maybe. And that was my first interest, but I started getting interested in the German side, um, I think because they're the bad guys, and the good guys make a lot more sense, right? Like, they're fighting for freedom, and they're fighting against Hitler, and they're very explainable. But um, I was always curious, like, okay, what's it like to be on the, the bad guy side in World War II? Um, so that's, that's kind of where that interest came from, I think. Yeah, and we'll get into the book, The Virtuous uh, Wehrmacht. Uh, you definitely dive into that question. You you explored that in detail, sort of what makes the the bad guys tick. Um, okay, well, so we'll pick up the the study of history uh, in a minute. But I did want to back up and just ask if um, if you had any religious or spiritual dimension to your upbringing, and and if so, uh, whatever you'd like to share about that. Yeah, uh, very much so. Um, so I come from a family of. Uh, Lutheran ministers. I want to say about five, I think it's five generations on my dad's side, like, like Norwegian Lutherans. Um, my grandfather was a professor at Luther Seminary uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota for like 30 years at least. Um, he's like one of the kind of biggest figures in the, in the Lutheran church um, in the U.S., you could say, perhaps. On my mom's side of the family, um, they are all German Lutherans uh, going back generations. Um, so I grew up in a very, you know, a very Lutheran household, uh, you know, daily, you know, praying over supper, reading the Bible, um, going to church every Sunday. You know, when your dad's a pastor, um, it's hard to uh, skip church. 
Um, and then he also taught theology uh, as a professor at a Lutheran school uh, for a while. And so uh, religion has been a, a very big part of my life uh, and continues to be to this day, even though I've moved around and gone to many, many different churches, uh, including in Israel, uh, of course. Um, but yeah, so that it could be, you know, my, my background there might be one of my reasons for being interested in, in the topic of morality and religion when it comes to the Second World War. Yeah, certainly a sensitivity to the, the moral dimension of religion or the ethical demands that uh, Christianity in particular, but um, I think more broadly religion places on people. Yeah. Okay, so um, jumping a little back to, to you as a historian, I, when we have historians on, we ask just how do you define yourself as a historian? Uh, because there's so many subfields, there's so many ways you can, so many methods that, that different historians really want to hang their hat on. So if someone just came up to you and asked sort of, how do you define yourself as a historian, what would you say? Yeah, uh, so that's, that's a tough question. But um, I would say in terms of my geographic interest and chronological interest, um, it really centers around uh, modern Europe and the Second World War, especially Germany and the Third Reich, uh, the Nazi regime kind of mid, mid 20th century, um, I'd consider myself uh, kind of bridging the gap between uh, a few different styles of history, military history, and also kind of social and cultural history, religious history. Um, so I do a kind of blend. Um, as far as the military side, I uh, concentrate less on battles and generals and more on uh, what's called kind of the new military history, which is more of like a social history of the army. So what are these, what's the individual soldier thinking? Uh, what kind of decisions are they making uh, rather than, you know, what, what battles did they fight in? Um, in terms of, uh, I guess, more generally as a historian, I'm interested in, in the individual, kind of the common person, um, in this case, like the common soldier what makes them tick, uh, what kind of choices do people make, especially during stressful situations. Uh, so it might be wartime or revolutions or big things happening in the background. And I'm kind of interested how, how the ordinary person navigates those types of scenarios. Uh, and that's, that's kind of where I got into the history of morality. Yeah, that's fascinating. And uh, you've picked uh, one of the most yeah, stressful situations, I guess, to look at how individuals um, react to, uh, on an individual basis, I guess, um, react to major moral or, or ethical questions. Um, before jumping into the book, one last question, and that's just what are you doing now for, your, for a day job, and, and um, how do you see sort of your training in history uh, fitting into that job? Yeah, um, so right now I, I've uh, kind of left academia, at least temporarily, uh, who knows, but I work for a company called Legal Services Corporation. Uh, it's a nonprofit based in D.C. that uh, gives out federal money in the form of grants for civil legal aid uh, so people can afford lawyers. And I actually work in the IT department. Um, so I'm a learning specialist, and I help people um, kind of in our headquarters in D.C. I am working remotely. Um, I help them learn all of our company's software systems and do orientations for new hires and um, kind of instructional guides and things of that nature. Um, so in terms of my historical training, 
Um, hard to say that it's been, you know, directly relevant. What I think is most relevant is my training as a teacher uh, from, from my time in grad school. Um, and I guess you could say training as a historian is also a factor because I'm, I'm basically taking really complicated things and breaking them down into small things and making them understandable. Um, so it might be, you know, the history of World War II, or it might be a software system that's really complicated. But at the end of the day, if you're trying to teach it to somebody, you're going to have to figure out a way to, you know, make it digestible and kind of break it up into smaller parts. Um, so especially the, the teaching component, I think, has, has carried over pretty strongly. Um, and also my interest in technology um, in grad school, I used a lot of uh, specialized software for my research that um, other historians don't tend to use. And that's translated over pretty well to my current job, which is, you know, I have to learn lots of new software systems and then quickly teach them to other folks. So, yeah, that's that's how I'd, how I'd say it relates to my current position. Yeah, thanks, David. And I forgot to mention, as I was uh, trying to hit on the touch points that we both had at UW, is that we both had the same job, one after the other, for a postdoctoral fellowship um, that was actually with the history department at UW, but also with um, the defense POW MIA accounting agency doing some uh, research for them. And I remember using a, a number of sort of digital technology uh, research aids uh, there that were certainly, that was the first time I had ever done that in my training as a historian as well. And you come out of that with a whole new skill set, or, or at least a whole new imagination of things you could do as a historian that aren't confined just to doing historical research. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I do think technology is often overlooked, uh, unfortunately, in, in history departments, but maybe that's changing. Well, going deeper into uh, your book, the title, The Virtuous Wehrmacht, Crafting the Myth of the German Soldier on the Eastern Front, 1941 to 1944. And the book uh, just came out a few months ago. Uh, is it a few months ago? In uh, the official publication date is no November 15th, uh, so... Fairly, fairly recently. Yeah. Okay. And with Cornell University Press. So thank you for the work. Uh, I enjoyed reading it over the last um, you know month or so, and um, it was a fascinating study. And so I'm really excited to talk to you about it here for our audience. I wanted to ask. We've we've sort of heard how you became interested in the topic of World War II and even uh, military or sort of a social history of of the common German soldier. How did this particular topic? become of interest to you and sort of develop into your uh, long-term research project? That uh, really kind of started in grad school. I knew I wanted to do some kind of World War II related project from the German perspective. And um, for my master's thesis, I ended up studying German chaplains during World War II on the Eastern Front. Um, and that project um, was very interesting. See, I didn't even know like the Nazi army had chaplains to begin with. And I thought, you know, that was a kind of fascinating situation. Um, and that topic led me to, um, I guess I wanted to, to learn not just about this small group of chaplains, but the ordinary soldier, because the chaplain was technically more of an officer uh, type of guy. But I was wondering, you know, if the chaplains are having all these these moral, you know, decisions to make and uh, trying to navigate this war. Um, what's it like for the average soldier? Um, initially, I was just going to study religion 
um, on the Eastern Front. But as I went into the archives, I discovered that my my interests were a bit bigger. Um, I wanted to study not just religion, but morality and these larger questions. Um, and, oh, and I should probably clarify for the audience. Um, so the Wehrmacht, uh, it's spelled with a W, but pronounced like a V. Uh, that's the name of the German military in World War II. Uh, so that's, I'm going to be using that word a lot uh, today. Could you also just quickly define, it's in the, your subtitle too, the Eastern Front. So you mentioned before Stephen Ambrose, a famous American military historian, you know, wrote uh, the Band of Brothers um, book that became a popular thing. A lot of that focused on the Western Front, which is the D-Day and the American story. Uh, of course, the Eastern Front uh, was actually a bigger front. But can you just give a, a basic sort of rundown of, of what you mean by the Eastern Front? Yeah, so the Eastern Front, um, by that, I am specifically fo- focusing on the war between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Uh, in World War II. So in 1941, Hitler decides to invade the Soviet Union um, as part of this larger project of kind of gaining land and dealing with quote-unquote racial enemies of Germany and uh, brings uh, three million men um, from Germany and a few other countries to this invasion. Uh, The Soviet army, you know, amasses millions more and the Eastern Front you know, conflict goes on from 1941 to 1945. Um, if you've heard of the Battle of Stalingrad, that's um, you know one of the focal points of the war. Um, so the Eastern Front is this often overlooked um, part of the conflict, but it's actually the biggest single theater uh, in the Second World War, at least in Europe, uh, where you know you've got millions of Germans fighting against millions of Soviets and. Um, a lot of the war is really decided on the Eastern Front, I would say. Yeah, and you you look at these um, these German soldiers who are fighting battles, but a lot of their time is just spent sort of uh, occupying territory and interacting with the Russian, I assume they're mostly Russian, citizens and, and uh, people there. And so that's not a pretty uh, occupation either. It, it, tell Say a little more about that. It, it it is not. Um, so to put it mildly, I was. It's it's a horrible, horrible. Uh, one of the worst fronts, probably in in human history. I would say in any war. Yep, uh, absolutely. Um, so based on on research from the past few decades uh, that that scholars have done, um, we know uh, a lot more about the Eastern Front than we used to. And one of the main things we know now is this um, looked a lot more like just a giant series of war crimes than a conventional conflict. Um, So the German army was just exterminating entire villages, um, reducing the population to starvation through widespread theft, um, you know, burning entire towns to the ground, executing prisoners on site, um, helping the SS execute Jews or transport Jews uh, to be killed in the uh, in the death camps as part of the Holocaust. So this was really a, a racial war of extermination um, is the way historians see it today, rather than just, uh, you know, a more kind of normal conflict where two armies are fighting each other. Um, so, yeah, so we have to view it in, in, a, in the light of Nazi racial ideology uh, rather than kind of conventional tactics. Yeah, and that, that sets us up well. So in this absolutely extreme, horrible condition. 
the as your subtitle talks about, there's actually a myth that emerges out of this Eastern Front of the German soldier, and as your title calls it, the virtuous Wehrmacht, so the virtuous German army. So tell us about that myth. What is it? Where did it come from? And why was it so powerful? And something that you're sort of responding, you, not just you, but a number of historians over the decades have responded to. Yeah, so the it's called a few different names, but the myth of the clean Wehrmacht uh, is the one I use. Um, this is an idea that's uh, pretty old. It goes back at least to the war, I would argue, during the war itself. Um, and, and it's the idea that was very popular in among the German public, even in the U.S., that the German army in World War II had been relatively honorable, um, that the average soldier was a pretty decent guy, didn't commit war crimes, kind of followed the rules, uh, that the army kept its distance from the Nazi regime, didn't really you know, have much to do with Nazi crimes, um, that it was pretty much a conventional fighting force. And you think of figures like Erwin uh, Rommel, or um, the July 1944 plot against Hitler that the army was involved with. And you come away with the idea that the army is, you know, this relatively decent organization, uh, and the men in its ranks were virtuous guys or decent guys. Um, And over the last, uh, really since the 1990s, uh, if not earlier, this myth has been um, pretty systematically torn down uh, by historians, and we now understand that um, the Wehrmacht was not operating as this, you know, decent, honorable organization. It was, in fact, um, you know, committing crimes on a scale that uh, had not been seen before in modern military history. So the book uh, has a lot to do with, you know, where did that myth come from? And I, I argue that it was actually created not after the war, which is what most people think, but during the war by soldiers who were writing letters home and presenting a kind of twisted version of what was going on. So that that gets us to um, just what was your historians often, you know, work from a particular source base to develop their arguments and the narrative that they tell. So um, I thought your source base was pretty interesting. Tell us about the sources you used to sort of develop your your argument. Uh, the sources I used uh, came from a few different places, uh, but the the core uh, was a group of 30 soldiers, um, and I looked at their letters uh, as well as a few diaries. Um, so these are private letters written um, home from the soldiers who were fighting on the Eastern Front um, to their parents or their brothers or sisters or you know, people in the homeland. Um, and... Um, I picked those because they provide a real-time, um, very intimate um, idea of what what these men were thinking, uh, the kind of decisions they were making, you know, the ideas they had about the war. Um, of course, oftentimes uh, the letters are pretty boring. Um, their soldiers are asking for cigarettes, or you know, asking how Aunt Aunt Meg is doing back home. But um, there's enough in there to to get an understanding of kind of their moral situation. Um, so those form the the core of my sources, and uh, and for that there's a, a particular archive I went to in Berlin that collects soldiers' letters. Um, so that that ended up being a, a very useful resource. Um, I also went to several other archives, including the military archive in Freiburg, which 
um, contains a lot of uh, institutional documents from the military. So like orders that commanders issued, regulations, propaganda materials the army created, um, a lot of these sources that helped give the letters a context. Because um, in a lot of military histories, you're sort of either looking at the men on the ground or you're looking at the generals, and not a lot of people try to look at both. Um, so I tried to get a context around what is happening to these individual soldiers. Um, and then in addition to that, I looked at some sources from the German home front, um, like speeches by Hitler, propaganda from the Nazi regime, um, also sources from the German churches, to get a sense of how the home front and the front are interacting with each other, mm. um, which is, I think, also another another factor that's often overlooked in military history is you usually just kind of look at the you look at the front or maybe you look at the home front, but you don't really talk about how they connect to each other. Uh, I tried to bridge that gap here. Yeah, and of course, the the moral calculus uh, that you're following on all these different issues is something that everyone's sharing, or that at least the soldiers are sort of writing home and it seems like they're trying to sort of justify what they're doing, knowing that they're going to have to account for it in some way, um, if not to their family, then to themselves um, when they get home. So it seems like that that the home front is even always in the mind, even if these soldiers are far, you know, far away from home. Yeah, for sure. And um, I mean, these are ordinary guys. Most of them are drafted into the army, so they didn't volunteer. Um, they come from all walks of life. Um, you got like bakers, farmers, shopkeepers, um, and they... No, they have a, a whole host of ideas on what is right and wrong uh, that originates in, in the society in which they grew up that they bring um, into the conflict. Um, but I also see a, a kind of tension between what I call traditional moral values and then the values of the Nazi regime that's uh, initiating this conflict. Yeah, and, and we're getting here into the meat of the book. So if you could just set up for us those two the way you describe them, sort of the traditional moral values of, of which uh, I gather Lutheranism and Catholicism would be two sources of those moral values. And then against this much newer Nazi ideology that uh, in in a few ways, I guess, overlaps, but in a lot of ways uh, butts up against or contrasts with this traditional um, morality. Just give us a sense of those two categories and how you're understanding them. So uh, traditional morality is essentially um, what I call the, the ideas about right and wrong that were prevalent in German society before the Nazis came along. Um, so it, it's difficult to give a sort of precise definition. I use kind of a commonplace definition of morality um, as, you know, well, it's right. And what do people think is right and what do people think is wrong? Um, and in German society at that time, um, a lot of that was based on Christianity or Judaism, uh, the Ten Commandments, you know, thou shall not kill, don't steal, uh, you know, don't, uh, don't commit adultery. Um, so you have um, this general idea of respecting human life, um, also values like uh, justice, um, kindness, loyalty, a lot of German nationalism is also part of that too. Being a good patriot um, in German society is kind of wrapped up in their moral tradition. Um, values like cleanliness, 
uh, hard work, this kind of bourgeois middle class sensibility. Uh, within the military itself, you also had um, what I call the military virtues, so bravery, sacrifice, um, you know, patriotism, not uh, killing innocent women and children uh, would come under that category. So these are all, uh, and, and religious ideas as well. Um, so I have a whole chapter on religion, and um, a lot of these soldiers, about 95% of them, grew up as either Catholic or Protestant. Um, and so they were, you know, they were quite familiar with, um, with the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule um, and things like that. So that is one whole moral category that I talk about uh, with many different kind of sub parts there. But in German society in the 1930s, uh, since the Nazis came to power, um, there was a, a very different, um, you could call ideological or moral system that the Nazis were trying to uh, kind of advocate for in German society. Um, so the Nazis, in contrast you know, to that traditional morality, they didn't believe that there was a one single human race and then every person has infinite value. They believed that there are multiple races um, and some races are superior to other races. Uh, the races are always in conflict with each other. And uh, that Germany's mission was to sort of unite the German race and destroy or defeat the other races, uh, particularly Jews, who are considered kind of the worst of the worst. And uh, the Nazis, throughout their time in power and also within the army itself, um, they, they really tried to transform uh, the way Germans think about right and wrong by... Um, you know, through propaganda and uh, radio broadcasts and all kinds of different means, um, they try to get Germans to sort of switch over from more traditional moral values to this Nazi ethical system. Um, and it's, it's kind of crazy to think about the Nazis having a moral system, but many historians now would say that, yes, they did. It's just not anything we would recognize today as, you know, a legitimate moral system. Um, so you have this kind of conflict between these two value systems. But as you were saying, there's also some overlap. Um, so there are a lot of values that um, the Nazis prized that were kind of similar to, um, to, to values that were prized before. Uh, things like loyalty, service to the nation, sacrificing for the nation, comradeship. And a lot of uh, traditional moral values will get kind of twisted by the Nazis. So instead of being loyal to the nation, you're loyal to Hitler as the Fuhrer, um, or you're loyal to your racial community of Germans. Um, if you're being courageous, well, you need to be courageous in the battle to destroy other races. You see this kind of overlap in the middle of these two value systems that you know, theoretically should be quite incompatible, one would think. Yeah. And you, um, we're going to zero in here. The book is quite expansive and goes into, um, a lot of different, uh, areas of this bigger, uh, sort of tension, but we'll jump sort of into the religion question in particular. And just thinking about sort of concretizing this, this more abstract, uh, set of two value systems, uh, you spend a lot of the book looking at how specific soldiers understood and justified their wartime activities. 
um, and the war itself sort of balancing uh, these two systems? Or how would you describe that? If you could generalize for the soldier, how are they, um, how should we understand the relationship between these two moral systems as they're playing out in the army? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I'd say for, I kind of place different soldiers on a, a spectrum. Um, so there are some soldiers who fully embrace Nazism. And um, whenever their side, say, executes prisoners or commits war crimes, they they give a kind of Nazi justification. So these people were subhumans because they don't belong to you know, the German ethnicity, for example. Um, so there are some who, who go fully to the Nazi value system. And then there are others who are more in that traditional value category. So they, you know, they hold fast and maybe it's Christianity or um, middle-class norms or, or some other version of traditional morality. And they tend to see the war through that context. Um, however, one of the things that I've unfortunately find, found, and it's one of the major findings of the book, is a lot of those soldiers managed, um, maybe surprisingly, to still rationalize what they were doing um, and to kind of use traditional, or you might say abuse traditional morality to um, get to the same acceptance of these crimes uh, that were happening on the Eastern Front as soldiers who fully embrace Nazism. Um, and then you have a lot of men who are kind of somewhere in the middle so they've they've partially adopted Nazi values, but not completely. Um, they so there's there's this kind of murky murky middle of guys who might justify what they're doing using different value systems, kind of mixing and matching whatever makes the most sense to them. Do you see any change over time from 1941 to the end of the war where? Um, one would hope maybe, and I know it's a, it's a pretty heavy topic and a um, depressing outcome for a lot of these soldiers, but one would hope maybe that over time there's sort of a moral reaction against the atrocities and maybe a critical evaluation of Nazi ideology or something. Do you see any change over time like that, or is it pretty much, uh, is it not sort of dependent on what part of the war we're talking about? Um, so for the most part, I found that most of the soldiers were able on some level to uh, to rationalize what they're doing, to justify what they're doing, whether that's through Nazi ideology or through traditional morality um, throughout the war, unfortunately. Um, however, um, I have found some soldiers who started to actually change their minds um, as the conflict went on, as they saw more and more what their side was doing, like there's one soldier who comes to mind who witnesses the execution of Jews on the Eastern Front, and in one of his letters, um, he he talks about feeling ashamed to be German, actually, and um, kind of really starting to question if this is, if he's on the right side. Um, there's a, another soldier named Konrad Jarosch, who's actually the father of a very famous uh, German historian, and he worked in a uh, prisoner of war camp where um, Soviet prisoners were sort of systematically starved to death. And he was a very devout Christian, uh, Protestant, and he he starts to see how these prisoners are being treated, 
and he will come to um, to also really question what the Germans are doing, and he kind of sees that that goes against his Christian values, and um, he starts doing whatever he can to to get more food and more clothing to the prisoners, um, even though unfortunately he himself dies before the end of the conflict. So you do see some soldiers who are beginning to question, um, you know, is this really, are we really the good guys? Because uh, so many of them, um, unfortunately, had convinced themselves that they were on the right side. When you, when you talked about the spectrum of people and how much they essentially bought into Nazi ideology, do you get, when you get to, when you see people sort of on the far end of that spectrum who are really embracing the cause um, do they, how do they identify religiously? Do, are these people who sort of cast off any identity with Catholicism or Lutheranism, or do they, are they able to merge those even on that sort of far end of the spectrum and see what they're doing both as, you know, good for the Nazi regime and good for the church, essentially? That's a good question. Um, I would say the, the absolute most um, Nazi soldiers that I've run into you tend not to have much of a connection uh, to their faith or to the church. They might be nominally like Christian in name or upbringing, but uh, they've kind of cast that off. Um, But I would say there's a larger group uh, who saw themselves as Christian at least, but um, still managed to uh, kind of justify what was going on or to accommodate themselves to what they saw around them. I'd say in general, uh, many Christian soldiers didn't really see the contradiction between Christianity and Nazism, um, which is kind of strange. You'd think, well, this is, they're completely different. How could that be possible? Um, but they're growing up in a society where it had been a predominantly Christian country for a very long time. Uh, many of the soldiers just kind of assumed that Germany's leadership were Christian. Um, a lot of them even considered Hitler to be Christian which I, you know, I would dispute very much. Um, but Hitler um, did a pretty good job at kind of trying to portray himself as a, like a old-fashioned family values guy who was going to support the churches. Um, and so some soldiers really bought into that. Yeah, you you got a very complicated relationship between Christian Christianity and Nazism, where you know you would expect to be you'd expect these to be completely separate things and soldiers can't possibly accept both at once um but many of them did and and part of the book is about trying to explain how they how they managed to reconcile these things in in their minds those are in some ways individual stories right each each soldier is doing its own or doing their own uh thinking on this or reflecting on this and to try to make a case that's convincing, I guess, to their own conscience um, and to the people they're writing to in these letters. I also think of all the institutions that, I mean, these aren't just individuals sort of sitting in a vacuum. They're totally bound up in the institution of being German citizens and the state and, and more immediately the army and all the pressures in the army. It seemed like you go a lot into sort of just the way that uh, from the top down, um, the German army and then the German state uh, above that sort of used instrumentalized religion in ways that were uh, advanced their own aims. Talk a little about that and and the institutional part of the story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the the military as an institution, it's 
know, it's a place where um, its members don't have a, a whole ton of freedom of action. Um, you know, it's, it's a very regimented organization. You've, you're supposed to follow your orders and do what you're told. Um, and the, you know, the men in charge of the Wehrmacht um, were constantly pushing out propaganda and indoctrinating the soldiers. So a lot of that was uh, trying to get soldiers to buy into Nazism and, you know, see Hitler as, as their supreme leader. But one of the, the interesting things I found is the army also pushed a lot of kind of more traditional arguments for the war. Um, for example, soldiers were sometimes told that they were fighting to liberate the Soviet Union from Joseph Stalin and the evil communists. Uh, there's also this crusade line that's very important in the book, um, where even, even Nazi leaders and then military leaders and chaplains told soldiers that they were fighting a Christian crusade against uh, the atheist, the godless Soviet Union. Um, and a lot of soldiers, Christian soldiers, um, really saw that as one of their main motivations uh, for fighting in the conflict was not only destroying the Soviet Union, but uh, perhaps bringing religion back uh, to this land where uh, Joseph Stalin had kind of shut down the churches. You have the institution kind of encouraging soldiers to, to find some kind of personal justification that makes sense makes the most sense for them, whether that's religious or or some other some other kind of form of legitimation. Well, there's so many places we could go. I want to end the conversation on the book by just uh, trying to frame sort of a takeaway lesson. I mean, this is such a darkly fascinating episode in in history. Um, I when I was uh, reading your book, David, and I was thinking about sort of what is so riveting uh, in a sort of intellectual way about trying to understand these historical uh, actors, I thought about a bunch of different tension points that they had to act within in it's sort of the most extreme circumstance. And so they were individuals embedded in all these institutions. There was this tension between the particularism and the racism of Nazism and then the uh, universal message of Christianity and the gospel. They had this tension between seeing themselves as liberators and yet acting as at best occupiers, at worst, as you said, just a rolling uh, war crime machine that just um, was not liberating. And then there was this traditionalism or this this deeper history of a certain set of moral values and then overlaid with this much newer radical ideology of Nazism. And so um, you know, there's a lot there, and I just commend you for capturing all that uh, in a in a book that um, is sourced in all these important uh, primary sources. But I wonder, as 21st century Americans um, who are thinking about this or hopefully who read your book and are reflecting on the moral lives of these soldiers, is there a lesson there as you've written and thought about this? Is there a moral lesson in there for people who are not in that situation, but who also face some of those tensions between the individual and institutions and collective versus individual responsibility and all that kind of stuff? Is there anything that um, you sort of concluded from your research on that front? Yeah, I would say so. Um, the, I guess the, the main conclusion I would draw on the moral level is um, that we have to be very careful of our powers of rationalization, of moral rationalization. Um, so these soldiers who are 
fighting this essentially genocidal war, often personally taking part in war crimes, managed to convince themselves they, that they were the good guys, uh, whether that's using traditional values and kind of considering themselves to be liberators or crusaders or, or fighting back against evil, um, or going the, the Nazi route and considering themselves to be racial warriors, human beings are remarkably gifted at rationalizing and justifying uh, almost anything. I mean, if a German soldier can rationalize you know, the execution of thousands of civilians, um, we can rationalize the smaller things in our lives. Um, so I think um, one thing I want people to take away is to um, is to be able to recognize when we're doing that um, and recognize when we are um, essentially just making excuses in our heads uh, for our behavior rather than kind of seriously reflecting on um, our actions and whether or not we, we should be doing what we're doing. So I, I think that's one big takeaway. Um, relatedly, um, one of the one of the things I notice in my book is you have a lot of soldiers who um, they are part of of these war crimes, but they might commit one or two little acts of kindness. Um, so you've got soldiers who give out bread to starving civilians once in a while, or maybe they'll they'll help out a, a prisoner of war. And, um, and they write home about it in, the, in their letters, and they kind of feel good. And they present themselves as, I'm a good person because I, you know, I was nice to this old lady. Uh, and, and you literally, like, there's one soldier who talked about bringing firewood to an old lady so she could survive the winter. Um, and I think it's very easy for people to, um, to use those little moments to uh, kind of cover a multitude of sins. Like, it, it sort of, it takes... I think it takes a little bit of good to do a lot of evil because uh, no one wants to see themselves as evil. So if you, if you do a couple of nice things along the way, you can justify something even worse. Um, so I, I hope readers will get a sense of, of these sort of uh, these moral tricks that we play in our own heads. And uh, if we can recognize them, I hope we can, uh, we can start to overcome them as a few of the soldiers started to do. Yeah. And I, I also wonder, wonder what you think about this. The, uh, I think it's one thing to understand that people in a, in a, in a moment of immense intensity and, and things are happening really quickly can rationalize something that turns out to be a very horrible action. Um, I think one of the, the really humbling things is how, at least in, in your case study, these people rational they don't sort of return critically to the situation after the, you know, the next day for sure, but even after the war and say, oh, that was, I need to reevaluate my actions in that. There's so much investment in perpetuating, as you say, the myth uh, of the German soldier. And so there's, there's this extra level of the capacity of humans to, to rationalize is that there's a whole memory part of this that makes it very hard to um, return later, it requires a generation even maybe uh, to look afresh on something to actually understand the moral gravity of some of a of an act. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in Germany, it's taken generations, um, and there are still some people who who think well of the Wehrmacht that it was this honorable institution. 
But yeah, these soldiers really became um, incredibly invested in, in the stories that they were telling themselves and telling their loved ones, um, which were often, you know, often sort of whitewashing the reality. Um, and there's, there's another lesson that comes to mind um, that has to do with uh, just many of these soldiers uh, just kind of followed along and did what they were told and did what the society and Germany's leadership told them to do. Uh, they just kind of assumed that, you know, they were in a Christian country or their, their leadership are going to follow ethical principles. Um, and I, so I think there's a lesson in there in kind of doing your own moral thinking for yourself and not kind of abdicating that responsibility to to some kind of leader uh, or government. Very sobering lessons. I, I actually want to see if we can uh, capture some glimmer of hope um, at the end of the uh, discussion here. Um, and I wonder if you could just speak for just a minute on we've talked we've mentioned a few times how by the 1990s, there's a willingness by historians and then it seems like by the broader German public to face up to some of the reality of what happened on the Eastern Front. Do you have any sense, uh, if you could just, you know, speculate, why did it happen then? And, and sort of what, what's been the benefit of that for Germ you know, for the German society? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I'd say the 1990s are kind of a turning point for German memory. Um, part of it is the war generation is kind of no longer with us. Um, but uh, there's a, a very famous museum exhibition in 1995 called The Crimes of the Wehrmacht that uh, portrayed in photographs and writing and all kinds of other sources uh, the, the truth of what the Wehrmacht had been doing uh, on the Eastern Front. And a lot of millions of people attended. It actually became the most popular museum exhibition ever. Um, and a lot of people... Um, who hadn't really thought about this before, um, they went in and they saw pictures of grandpa um, executing civilians or, you know, all these images that conflicted with the stories they had been told by, you know, by their parents or grandparents. Um, and so that was a real turning point in German memory. Um, there's also been a lot of historical scholarship and universities and schools that are teaching you know, the, the true version of, of events uh, when it comes to the German army. I'd say, in general, Germany has, has done, it's taken a while, um, but Germany has done a pretty remarkable job uh, acknowledging its history. Um, and it's, it's a difficult thing to do because the, you know, the, the perpetrators themselves are no longer alive. And so a lot of young Germans are wondering, like, why do I have to learn so much about the Nazis? Like, it's not my, I didn't do it, but I, I think there's a sense among Germans, uh, and I, I hope I'm correct, that as, you know, part of this country that has committed these crimes in the past, um, they are in a, in a good position to educate the world about the dangers of, of Nazism and this racial ideology. Um, so I, I hope that, you know, a lot of young Germans see themselves as, um, as being able to bring that message to other folks. Um, and there's one more hopeful message that I'd like to get across, um, having to do with religion in particular. Even though a lot of Christian soldiers were able to rationalize what they were doing or see themselves as crusaders, um, you see these moments of, of reflection and tension where they start to realize 
um, the Nazis aren't really, you know, aren't really compatible with Christianity or um, Nazism isn't, maybe isn't the way to go. Uh, for example, soldiers reopened churches in the Soviet Union and worshiped side by side with civilians. You also have some soldiers who make friends with Soviet civilians or go to, to uh, Orthodox worship services. Um, and there is a sense uh, in the Wehrmacht that Christianity is, is kind of starting to undermine Nazism. Um, and there, there are more and more soldiers toward the end of the war who started to question, you know, are the Nazis actually Christian? Because they're, they're not really treating the churches kindly uh, back in, in Germany at home. So I do think, you know, there are, there are definitely bright spots um, for seeing that, that Christianity could uh, certainly be a force for, um, you know, a force for resistance against the Nazis. Um, but unfortunately, it just uh, wasn't quite enough uh, at the end of the day. On that more positive point, the way that the German, the Nazi leadership responded to some of the, you know, the Weimar opening churches, worshiping, they were very threatened by that. And it it seemed like the the leadership understood how this could corrode their own influence if they did not do whatever they could to suppress what we, you know, what we'd hope to be sort of the the deeply embedded Christian uh, brotherhood and, and understandings of shared dignity and things that... Uh, Nazism was totally against. So I do remember those parts of the story as well. Yeah, there's this tension between Christian universalism and Nazi, you know, racial thinking. All right. Well, just a couple more questions here to close us off. I we often uh, we of course hope uh, people will check out your book, David, and and benefit from it. But if there were other readings that you'd recommend, sort of either on the the morality side of the story or on getting a sense of of the full scope of the Eastern Front, are there is there anything that comes to mind as just sort of an obvious recommendation that you give to non-specialists? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, for people interested in morality and warfare in kind of a general sense, I'd recommend Michael Walzer's book, "Just and Unjust Wars." Um, he he's kind of like the founder of the field of morality and military history. Um, I'd also recommend Omer Bartov. Um, who's one of the you know, the great figures in in uh, the history of the Wehrmacht? Wrote a few books, including Hitler's Army, about the average soldier. Um, I I disagree with him a little bit. Like he he really thinks that ideology dominated. But in any case, uh, terrific books. I'd also mention Ben Shepard has written several books on the Wehrmacht, um, all excellent. And then uh, Wolfram Vetta. Uh, who's a German historian who's written a book called The Wehrmacht History, Myth, Reality. Um, So I I could go on, uh, but those are a few of the ones that are kind of at the top of my list. Thank you. We'll have those in the show notes uh, so people can at least check out the book, uh, the book pages on Amazon for those. So last question, David, Um, as, as you know, Upper House is a predominantly uh, Christian, it's a Christian organization has a predominantly Christian audience and I know that uh, I did this for uh, my first book as well. I was I was writing for an academic press. I was thinking about in my head, who am I writing this toward? It, it was other scholars, really. It was thinking about these deep conversations that scholars have been having about, you know, whatever you're writing. Um, but do you have any particular ways or if you ever thought about how you hope Christians in particular will read and understand your writing, uh, especially given the role of religion 
in your in your study? Yeah, um, I think primarily it's a warning, um, and the warning is that religion can be abused um, and used to justify all sorts of things, um, which you know the the actual religion doesn't condone. Um, in the case of the Eastern Front, um, you had this whole idea that was being built up by uh, by generals and and uh, some of the common soldiers that they were fighting this religious crusade. Um, and that kind of justified everything that they were doing. And a lot of these soldiers didn't, didn't unfortunately step back and see what they actually were doing um, and whether that was compatible with their Christian beliefs. Um, they just kind of saw that, well, we're fighting this atheist country. Therefore, everything we do uh, must, you know, everything we're doing is justified. Um, and the Nazi regime was trying to manipulate religion to get Christian soldiers to, you know, to fight, um, to fight for it. So uh, there's definitely a warning in there about, um, you know, even the devil can, can quote scripture, right? And um, unfortunately, we, we see a lot of that uh, in Nazi Germany. But I, I do think there's, there's also a positive uh, lesson, which is... Um, is the power of Christianity to bridge gaps between enemies and bring people together. Um, and really some of my favorite episodes in the war, uh, it's kind of strange to say that, but it, it's the reopening of churches by the German army, uh, where soldiers and civilians, whether Russians, Ukrainians, uh, were worshiping side by side uh, for a while before Hitler shut all that down. Um, and so you see the capacity of Christianity to um, to help these men recognize uh, their fellow human beings, not just fellow Christians, but fellow human beings, rather than these racial enemies who must be destroyed. So, if we're if we're ending on a positive note, I would, you know, I would emphasize that that yes, uh, religion can be abused, but um, certainly even in the darkest moments. Um, it also has the power to um, to bring people together and to bridge those divides. Yeah, thanks for those words. Uh, that's a fitting place to end the uh, the transformative power of the gospel to uh, transcend difference. Uh, I think is a is a good place to end. So thank you uh, for your time, David, and thank you for your research. Well, thanks very much for having me. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.